0: Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at adelaide.com. So pretty much black and white people of the same socioeconomic status in an area where were eating the same food. The only thing is that racism kept them from eating it together.
1: I'm Dalia Colon, and this is The Zest, citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State, although today we might just call it the Soul
0: Food State. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This
1: week, we're digging into the roots of soul food with Adrian Miller, better known as the Soul Food Scholar. After a career at the White House, the trained attorney set his sights on researching African-American culinary traditions. Adrian is the author of several books on the subject, including Black Smoke, African Americans and the United States of Barbecue, and The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas. His first book, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, won the 2014 James Beard Foundation Book Award for Reference and Scholarship. He is a smarty pants. And you might have seen him in the acclaimed Netflix docu-series, High on the Hog, How African American Cuisine Transformed America. Adrian is based in Denver, Colorado, but he's coming to Florida in February to headline the Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival. The event takes place, fittingly, on President's Day weekend. And on Friday, February 16th, I'm hosting the Collards After Dark event, where Adrian will give a talk about U.S. President's favorite beverages and cocktails. Then on Saturday, February 17th, Adrian will give a presentation about Black chefs in the White House. Gearing up for his appearance in Tampa Bay, Adrian chatted with me about his journey from attorney to food writer, Black chefs in the White House, and what we get wrong about soul food.
0: My name is Adrian Miller. I'm the Soul Food Scholar. My tagline is dropping knowledge like hot biscuits, which I will endeavor to do. I'm a recovering attorney, politico, award-winning author, certified barbecue judge, and my day job is I'm the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches.
1: So I should have asked, what don't you do? Yeah. First of all, how does the Denver guy become the soul food scholar?
0: So it's just self-proclamation. So really it was growing up in the tradition. So even though I grew up in Denver, Colorado, my parents who came to Denver separately from the South in the sixties, my mom's from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and my dad's from Helena, Arkansas. But even in an unlikely place like Denver, when they met and started a family, they raised us in black traditions. So food was one of them, going to a black church and other things like that. So the way I became a scholar is when I decided that I was going to pursue this passion about learning more about African-American food traditions and sharing that to a broader audience, I was self-taught. So I read 3,500 oral histories of formerly enslaved people, 500 cookbooks, thousands of newspaper and magazine articles. And then talked to hundreds of people. And then because I care about the subject so much, I decided to eat my way through the country. So I went to 150 soul food restaurants in 35 cities in 15 states.
1: Oh, my gosh. All right. What is your definition of soul food? And does it depend on who's making it?
0: No, I don't think so. So I depart from other people because I know that there's a strong belief that only Black people can make soul food. But I think anyone can make soul food. You just got to hit the right flavor profile and be true to the tradition. One of the reasons why I say this is because I want soul food to be accessible to a lot of people because that's really the only way a cuisine grows and becomes popular is when people feel comfortable eating it and cooking it or going to a restaurant that provides it. So to me, soul food is just one of the traditional cuisines of African Americans in the United States. I think over time, soul food has become shorthand for all black cooking. But I I just don't think that's accurate because I think soul food is really the food that African African American migrants took out of the South and transplanted all across the country during the Great Migration. So I think it's different than the Gullah and Geechee cuisine of the coast, of the Atlantic coast going from, say, Southern Virginia all the way to Jacksonville, Florida. I think it's different than the Creole cuisine of New Orleans, Mobile, the lower Mississippi Valley. It's different than Appalachia. So I I just think it's this food that got a name once it left the South. And you know, it gets confusing because there's a lot of overlap between soul food and Southern food in terms of technique, ingredients, and tradition. But I think soul food is something distinct.
1: When you talk about the distinct flavor profile, can you give me an example? Because I'm in my house in Florida you know, for a holiday cooking, what I would consider soul food. And then right next door, my white neighbor who's in her 70s, she cooks a lot of Southern food, but there is a lot of overlap. So what would be some of the differences?
0: Soul food tends to be more highly seasoned. Traditionally, now this some of this stuff is breaking down, but traditionally soul food would feature more of what we call variety meats. So those lesser cuts of meat that are cheaper and have more flavor. So like the ham hocks, you know, people use pork necks, turkey tails, turkey tips, that kind of stuff. And then, so like an example would be more heavily seasoned. So like Nashville hot chicken, born of a black restaurant in Nashville. So it's fried chicken, right? But intensely spiced. And then another difference is uh, in savory and sweet. So for instance, in most soul food cooks will cook their cornbread with a little bit of sugar or a lot of sugar. And whereas Southern cooks, particularly white cooks, will be like, no, sugar should not be in cornbread. If you add sugar to cornbread, it becomes cake. And there's just certain things that you will find in a soul food restaurant you're not going to see in a Southern restaurant and vice versa. So I think the iconic example is chitlins or chitterlings, which are pork intestines. So, you know, a lot of soul food restaurants sell that maybe fewer than 20 years ago, but it's still a, a menu item. But then, you know, the Southern dessert like ambrosia I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Oh, yeah, with like
1: the marshmallows and the maraschino cherries.
0: Yeah, classic Southern dessert. I've never seen that on a soul food restaurant menu.
1: Oh, okay. Well, this is a light bulb moment for me. So that was more of a Southern dish. That was like a classic at the church potlucks. And you've got a church background you mentioned. So what's your favorite contribution for like a church potluck or picnic?
0: Well, I really like greens. So usually, when I cook for other people, I'll, I'll make a mix of mustard and turnip greens. And I know it's the Collard Green Festival, but um, I grew <laughs> up
1: Interview over. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. But I grew up with a mix of mustard and turnips. And I, you know, when I started out, I used pork, garlic, and onion and red pepper to season. So I've switched out the pork to s- smoked turkey because I'm, I'm finding I get more flavor out of smoked turkey these days.
1: Interesting. Okay, I did want to ask you about that because besides switching from pork to turkey, which I know a lot of us have done, and I'm now a vegetarian, so I don't use any meat in my greens. I saw you recently posted a demo online for gluten-free vegan fried chicken using mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. And I've been thinking about my own mac and cheese recipe. How could I maybe make it gluten-free or, or can I get the dairy out of this recipe? So Would you say that soul food is changing and like how far can it go and still be called soul food?
0: Well, the more plant-based expressions of soul food, I don't think are really a departure from the traditional forms of the food. I think it's actually more of a homecoming because if you look at what our ancestors ate in West Africa, very plant-based. I mean, they had some protein, but it was usually fish and maybe some game meat and things like that. But it it was not uncommon to have a a dish that was heavily full of vegetables and maybe some meat in there, Uh, later you know, chicken and things like that. But when you go back to our enslaved ancestors, typically on the plantation during the week, they were eating pretty much for breakfast, crumbled up cornbread with buttermilk in a trough, and they had to use their hands or a seafood shell because a fork or a knife was a potential weapon. And slavers were always fearful of rebellion because it happened a lot. And then that same trough would be washed out while people were out in the fields working. They'd come back for the midday meal and that trough would be filled with seasonal vegetables. There might be some meat in there to season the vegetables, but otherwise it was just vegetables that were in season. And then the evening meal was whatever was left over from that midday meal, people ate as leftovers. It was called supper, maybe with some cornbread. So people didn't get access to meat and the other things we think of soul food until the weekends are on special occasions. So what our enslaved ancestors ate was very close to vegan because meat was considered prestigious, access to white sugar, white flour, and all of those things was considered prestigious. And so black people, because of the perceived status in the society, didn't have regular access to those things. So the reason why I argue that soul food is the food that migrants took with them is because it follows the typical immigrant food pattern, where when people go to a new place, especially if they open up a restaurant, they usually show off the very best of their culture. So it's often the celebration food, uh, not Ah. the day in and day out food. So you know when you go to a soul food restaurant, you're typically having a hybrid. You've got the everyday stuff, the greens, the black eyed peas, but the celebration food would be the fried chicken, the barbecue the fried fish, the mac and cheese, because this is stuff that people did not have regular access to.
1: Okay, so some of these things that are maybe not the healthiest, they were only meant to be eaten on special occasions and not every day.
0: Right, and that—and then that part of that was just It's because just the work schedule and the status of Black people, they just weren't going to get this stuff on a regular basis. And then part of it was lack of access to those ingredients and then also the time factor because Black folks were working from sun up to sundown and you know it takes depending on what you're cooking for barbecue it takes at least three hours to four hours maybe even longer depending on what you're cooking but back then it wasn't cooking small cuts of meat it was cooking the whole animal and that usually took uh, a number of hours so you're dead tired at 930 and knowing that you have to get up at 5 a.m or whatever for the next day so this cooking didn't happen until the weekends because usually on the plantation the work schedule would end at noon on Saturdays and then enslaved people got the rest of the weekend off until Monday morning. So that's when they would hunt, forage, fish, make these glorious dishes and stuff to supplement their diet. Makes mm, sense?
1: Fascinating. It, it absolutely makes sense. I want to back up a little bit and talk about how you went from working in the White House to having all of this amazing information. Can you give me the Cliff Notes version of that journey?
0: Yeah. You know, uh, the short answer is unemployment. So (laughs) I had finished my stint in the Clinton White House working on something called the President's Initiative for One America. And it was about bringing people together. And I had the wild and crazy idea that if we just talked to one another and listened, we'd realize that we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. So at that point in my life, I wanted to be one of the US senators to Colorado for Colorado, my home state. So I was trying to get back from DC to get to Denver to start that career. And the job market was really slow, so I was just in D.C. a lot longer than I expected. I was watching a lot of daytime television, love connection, blind date. It was just bad. So The, in the classics. Of, yep. So in the depth of my depravity, I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to the local bookstore, and I would always like to cook, and I was looking on the bookshelf, and there was this book called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History by a guy named John Edgerton. The book was written in the late 80s, so I'm reading it in 2001. And in that book, he wrote that the tribute to Black Achievement in American Cookery has yet to be written. And I thought that was interesting. So again, the book was 14 years old. So I thought, well, somebody's done this. And I moved back to Denver, email him. And then while I was back in Denver, he said, hey, you know, nobody's really done this. There's always room for another voice, so i not yours. So that's what really launched the journey was just that one sentence.
1: Wow. So that led to the book Soul Food, The Surprising History of an American Cuisine One Plate at a Time, which won a James Beard Award. Congratulations. Thanks. In 2014. Now, what kind of response did you get from people when you told them you were researching a book on soul food? Because it's, you know, some people just think of it as commonplace, but you're really adding a scholarly lens to it.
0: So I got a lot of hater aid because people were just like, mainly African-Americans were just like, why would you celebrate this food? This is the food that the master didn't want. We've come so far from this. Why would you even point this out? And from other people, they're just like, oh, I don't really know what soul food is, but that might be interesting. And then other people thought I was betraying my education by lending intellectual energy to soul food. They're just, they just said, you're a Stanford grad. Why would you study and write about this? But the thing is, if you look at the celebration of all these other cuisines, you know, I just don't know why all these other cuisines got love, but not my own food. So I just wanted to figure out what was fact and fiction about the perceptions of soul food. And what I found is that soul food has been unfairly maligned. And so people have a notion about soul food, but they don't really know the whole story. And the the whole master's Unwanted food thing doesn't even hold up to historical scrutiny because when you look back at what people actually ate, it, it was more about class and place than it was about race. So, pretty much black and white people of the same socioeconomic status in an area were eating the same food. The only thing is that racism kept them from eating it together. And even within those class differences on the plantation, you find several examples of the enslaver eating the same food as the enslaved. In fact, most enslaved people were in situations where they ate out of the same pot as their enslaver because they were either on very small farms or they were in urban situations and it made no sense to have a separate cook cook for a small number of enslaved people. Because a lot of whites who had enslaved people weren't actually wealthy, but having an enslaved person was a matter of status. So they would often go beyond their means just to have enslaved people. So it was really only on 40% of situations where enslaved people were on these large plantations where they had a separate cook and separate food was made. So that feeds into the whole, enslaved people in the house ate like the master, enslaved people in the fields ate differently, which is true to a large extent, but that's only just part of the story. So I, I really wanted to show more complexity to the soul food story. Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish, from bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com.
1: You are blowing my mind right now. I had no idea because growing up, we always heard, you know, the Black people were given the worst parts of the pig and then they had to turn it into something. And and you're saying that wasn't necessarily true. So where does that come
0: from? So it, it's true, but only to a certain extent. So in the agricultural cycle of the South, there was this thing called hog killing. So they would wait until it was cold enough and then they would butcher, they, meaning planters, farmers, people would come together and butcher a whole bunch of hogs at one time. And then process them to preserve the meat to get them through the winter. So this was a big important task. So in addition to the cuts of meat like the ham, the pork shoulder, and, and other things that were valuable, there were certain parts that weren't. They were ephemeral and they had to be eaten quickly. So these weren't usually the internal organs. So chitlins, which are pig intestines, the kidneys, the they call them the sweet meat, you know, the sweetbreads and all of that stuff. So The idea was that was given to the people who processed the pigs as a reward. And so those things were eaten quickly. But again, the idea was that, oh, well, only the enslaved people were eating this stuff. And it's complex for two reasons. One, people eat intestines and internal organs all over the world, even in West Africa. So there was a tradition of eating these things. Secondly, white people were eating them too. I found stories of enslavers beating their enslaved cook because they didn't make the chitlins to their liking. And wow. even to this day, there's a Chitlin Festival that happens every August in Sally, South Carolina. And it's run by, organized, started by, hosted by white people. Stop it. And that, yeah. Thousands of people come to send on this town. It started as a town fundraiser. It's been going on for um, maybe like 40 years. I have a good information that you can smell it at the 50 mile marker as you're driving. Towards the, so, you know, so, the, so there's these narratives that emerge. And... The whole taking the scraps and turning them into something is twofold. It cuts both ways because it's empowering, right? It shows the creativity, the resourcefulness of these cooks. But then also it's used negatively to say, well, why are you guys eating that stuff that was garbage?
1: Oh, there's so much good information. This is why we just need to read your book. I actually did get your book about presidential chefs from the library. So if you don't mind, I want to switch gears and ask you a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so while I was researching the Soul Food book, I came across a few stories of African Americans who had cooked for presidents, and so I thought, well, that's interesting. And I was kicking myself because I thought, man, I was in the White House, I had white, I had top secret clearance. I could have just hung out in the kitchen and nobody would have stopped me because I, I had the clearance. But you know, I'm one of these dudes that if I'm not supposed to be someplace, I just don't, I don't go unless you're too good. You're too good. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I said, well, you know, let me keep looking around because six stories. And these were really just outlines of stories because it wasn't a lot of information. That's not enough to write a book. So I said, well, let me just keep digging and see what I can come up with. And then based on my research, I identified 150 African-Americans who have cooked for our presidents since George Washington. So every president in the United States from George Washington to Joe Biden has had an African-American cooking for them in some capacity, either in the White House or where they lived or when they would travel by train, boat or plane or when they would go someplace and stay for a while, because there were retreats, or people, the president would go someplace and stay for weeks at a time, and local families would loan their black cook to the president as a way of ingratiating themselves.
1: Oh, well, isn't that nice? (laughs) This is fascinating. Why were there so many black cooks? Is it just an economic thing?
0: It's more of a status thing. So uh, for a lot of people, having enslaved people was a sign of status. And, and having a cook, enslaved cook, was one of the big status, and even free cooks, because Black people were considered natural cooks. So it's kind of funny that when you're given few opportunities to do other stuff, and you excel at the limited opportunities that you have, that, that it's a natural ability. And we know now that it requires skill. And yeah, I mean, there's some intuition and stuff involved in cooking, but it, it's a learned art. And so, unlike our foodie time today, where chefs are very well celebrated and compensated very well for most of our history cooks have not been looked upon that way especially black cooks but black cooks were celebrated in fact from the 19th century to the 20th century french cooking was established as the standard for the world and americans would say well no we have great cooks here and they would point to black cooks so a lot of cooks arrived to the white house because they were enslaved by slaveholding presidents we had a number of them Otherwise, they were just happen to be the cook for somebody who became president. And then because D.C. is becoming less so now, but D.C. has long been a chocolate city, hires to the White House kitchen were from just uh, the locals. And again, being a cook was not something prestigious. It was more seen as like menial labor. And so black cooks were hired for those positions.
1: Which presidents were the biggest foodies? I'm thinking if I'm the president, I don't have time to worry about what I'm eating, but were there some who really took an interest in what the chef was preparing?
0: So I would say, well, a lot of the presidents were foodies. So George Washington was a foodie. So was Thomas Jefferson. They, I mean, they weren't actually cooking, but they were they were really appreciated a good meal. Chester Arthur was a foodie.
1: Chester Arthur, that's not a name you hear every day, <laughs> like George Washington right. and Thomas Jefferson. Okay, we're somewhat familiar with them, but like Chester Arthur,
0: yeah. So yeah, he was big time. He was into wine. He was, he was known for setting a good table. But I, I would say that Eisenhower in terms of actually cooking, President Eisenhower was probably the guy that was the biggest foodie because he would actually cook stuff. So one of the funny stories is that during his term, he had a grill put on the White House rooftop. So people were walking up and down Pennsylvania Avenue and they would see smoke coming out of the White House and it was the president up there grilling steaks. And he also had his own stew recipe that for the 1956 re-election bid, the GOP printed up recipe cards for his stew. It was a beef stew with a lot of vegetables in it. And they sent them out to housewives across the country and encouraged them to have stew suppers and invite their neighbors over to hear and talk about Eisenhower. Wow. Which I, I think is brilliant. That, they should bring that back today.
1: Yeah, that is really smart. Was there anything that surprised you? I mean, having worked in the White House, you probably saw a lot of the the behind-the-scenes stuff, but was there anything that really stood out to you when you were doing the research?
0: You know, it's like, duh, now. But just the fact that African Americans dominated that cooking, I just had no idea that there were so many Black cooks over such a, a span of time who dominated the White House kitchen. It's really only until recent years that Black people have not dominated the White House kitchen. And and mainly that's because Jacqueline Kennedy in the 1960s wanted to elevate the cooking. So she just started elevating quotation marks. So she just started hiring classically trained chefs from Europe. And so that's when you start to see the waning of the black presence in the kitchen. You still have African-Americans in the kitchen, but just not dominating the way they did before.
1: What do you think of that trend?
0: Well, I should say that even though African-Americans dominated the White House kitchen in terms of personnel, the White House kitchen has been multi-class and multiracial from its beginning. In Washington's kitchen you had free and enslaved African Americans working side by side and free and indentured whites working side by side. And then the other story that's interesting is since the war of eighteen ninety-eight, because we're not we're not supposed to say Spanish American War anymore because it was much bigger war than that. So the war of eighteen ninety eight, some people know as the Spanish American War. You started to see Filipinos coming into presidential yacht services replacing black cooks in naval service. And these cooks staffed the presidential yacht and then eventually were brought into the White House to staff the White House mess, which is run by the U.S. Navy. So you've got African-Americans, whites, Latinos, and Filipinos working side by side. In fact, the current executive chef of the White House, who's been there since the second term of Bush, is a Filipina named Christetta comforge. So as long as the presence is there, I, I'm, I'm fine. I, I would be sad if we didn't have any African American presence in the White House kitchen, given this rich history.
1: Wow. Last question. What did Bill Clinton like to eat? You were there, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> I was there, but I wasn't in the kitchen. So I can only go by the reports. I never had a, actually had a chance to uh, dine with him. But from what I hear, the stories that we've heard are true, you know, the fast food and other things like that. But The interesting thing is he's vegan now. So he has transitioned uh, to being vegan just for health reasons. Because if you remember, he did have some heart problems. So
1: Yeah, he's like slim and trim now.
0: Yeah, so I can't can't speak to what he actually loved to eat. I just never had a chance to eat with the brother.
1: Oh, man. All right, well, we can get together with you and him over a pot of vegan collard greens, perhaps.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and Chelsea Clinton, I got to add, before we go, Chelsea Clinton... She may be vegetarian, but she's either vegetarian or vegan. But she had the White House chef train her. So he took her through a Culinary Institute of America chef training course. So if you ever get invited to dinner with Chelsea Clinton, you should definitely take that invitation. I absolutely will. She should be able to burn.
1: She can throw down. Amazing. Well... You have so many good stories. I did get a chance to read your book about the presidents. I need to go back. I know you've got a barbecue book and of course, soul food. And you're just, you're an American treasure. You really are. Oh, thanks.
0: That's such a nice thing to say.
1: We're looking forward to having you at the Collard Green Festival and I will see you there.
0: All right. Peace.
1: Thank you so much for your time. That was Adrian Miller, a.k.a. the Soul Food Scholar. Don't you just want to hear more from him? Well, you can. As I mentioned at the top of the show, he'll be appearing at the Tampa Bay Collard Green Festival in February. Find the link to more information on our website, thezestpodcast.com. I'm D'Elia Colon. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas and Alexandria Ebron. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2024, part of the NPR Network.